have a very special guest for you today. It's like as if one night I went to sleep and this guy was a sales rep in this obscure company in the Middle East somewhere and I woke up the next day and he's CEO running this high-tech company in one of the most advanced spaces you can imagine in terms of what's happening currently in the market. And so I just had to talk to him and I hope you enjoy the conversation too. Colin Fitzpatrick, you're very welcome to the podcast. Tell me, Colin, for people who don't know you, maybe t tell me a little bit about where you grew up, first of all, and we'll, we'll go from there. Sure. I'm from Dublin, Ireland, born and raised most of my entire life, but bounced around a little bit. I've been living in Dubai for the last three and a half, nearly four years. And as of mm. the last couple of days, I'm right now in Brazil. I'm in the south of Brazil in a place called Florianopolis, and I'm taking advantage of the digital nomad lifestyle. And I'm going to be living and working from here for a little while, which is awesome. Well, I can't wait to get to this because there's so many aspects of this story. But let's go back a little bit. Six-year-old Colin in <laughs> Dublin. Yeah. What did you want to be when you grew up? Did you have any sense of that? I suppose I always had a very close relationship with my father. He was a business guy, did a lot of different stuff. I was always super interested in what he was doing from being six. I'd go to meetings with him and things like that. Definitely always had a tech streak in me from Commodore 64s showing my age there now, but basically always enjoyed computers, went on, was always a little bit of a nerd and stuff like that. So it's not a huge surprise to the people in my family that I've ended up in this space, put it that way. Okay, now you spent quite a few years in sales. Was there anything in that, because the, take the tech side out of it, that pointed to a career in... Yeah, I mean, I really loved computers and techie stuff, but I didn't want to be a pure hardcore programmer or computer scientist. When I was doing my leaving search, etc., I had to make the decision, do I want to go down this rabbit hole or do I want to know, go a more business-oriented approach? And when I was 16, I was fascinated. I got the internet for the first time, Ireland Online, I'm sure you remember that. I was fascinated by it. I taught myself HTML. I designed a couple of websites at age 16, making decent money. But I didn't really want to be a pure techie. I suppose my, my, my personality style is more people rather than machines. And I really just fell into sales. It wasn't a conscious decision. A friend of mine was working in Dell, said, hey, they're hiring loads of people. Come work here. Literally made a ball to the first two interviews because I had no idea what I was doing, but got the third one. And that's where my sort of career launched. All right. So Dell was your first sales job. Then Oracle? Then Oracle, where we met back in 2006. Yeah. Talk to me then about the kind of things that you're, that, that led you to, the, uh, I'm curious about the Middle East bit because mm. I, I know you spent quite a bit of time working in Dublin in Oracle and then Salesforce. Mm. And I missed that gap then when you, where you ended up in, in the Middle East. Talk to me about that. So yeah, I, I mean, it started in, in Dell, went there for about three years, jumped onto Oracle, was there for six or seven years, left, went to Salesforce for a few years, was in HubSpot for a year, came back to Oracle for a different type of role. All the previous roles were pure sales roles, came back to 
Oracle to do a different role, which is programs, because I always said to mm. myself, I enjoy sales and I'm good at it, but I didn't really want to be 50 years old and still cold calling people and trying to sling, pushing tin and stuff like that. So I got into programs which is essentially a mix of demand generation, marketing, operations, various different things. Enjoyed that and then got the opportunity to go to Dubai. Now, uh, number one reason was I got married to a Brazilian lady and she loves Ireland, but she couldn't hack the cold. And she went, can we move somewhere sunny? And my sister had been living in Dubai for quite a long time. We'd been over there many times and I said, okay, I'll have a go. But to be honest with you, there was, there's nothing in Oracle for what I do. And it's difficult job market out there, but I'll give it a bash. But it's going to take me six or 12 months, maybe more. And funnily enough, literally a month or two later, I, a job popped up on the portal and I read the description and I went, that's all the sort of stuff I can do and who's hiring. And I knew that. And I applied, I went through, and then a month later, I got the job, and I was over in I was over in Dubai. And now you're in Brazil. You do know that you're never leaving now. She's got you there, and that's it. There's no going back. Yeah, you said that to me before, and plenty of people say that, but I don't know. I'm interested in just bouncing around a little while. I mean, I have a son who's two and a half, and I can do that now before he gets, like, entrapment mm. into schools and things like that. Mm. The reason I'm over here is because 90% of my business is the US. And when I'm in LA, sorry, they're all in LA and I'm in Dubai, there's an 11 hour time difference, which means for the last two years, I pretty much work nights and it's brutal. I mean, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 and beyond are my busy hours. And it's not good for family life and it's not good for my sleeping patterns in my head. So we took the opportunity to chuck everything in storage and move out here for a little while. And, uh, it's, I'm only here a couple of days. I'm cold for the first time wearing a jumper. No, never need to do that in Dubai, but it's cool. It's, it's a, mm. I mean, I literally packed up all my stuff and we have two suitcases each and it's quite liberating mm. just going, I'm throwing all that stuff behind and I, I'm only here with the stuff I really need. Do I think I'll be here forever? I don't know. I'm really enjoying the, I don't need to make a decision. I'm just going to come here. I'm going to see what happens and I'll decide later. My wife certainly wants to go back to Brazil. She loves it. Oh, sorry, back to Dubai. She absolutely loves it. But, Freud, you know, Freudian slip there, but we will ignore yeah. it. Uh, <laughs> tell me, Gala, two and a half years ago, you became a father. Talk to me about how that has changed you. Oh, yeah. I'm 42, so I'm hardly a young father. It is a wonderful experience in many ways. And I really, I really enjoy, especially now that he's a little bit older, teaching him stuff, showing him things, get him interested. He loves uh, anything, transportation, buses, boats, planes, airplanes, trucks. I'm a car guy. So it, it's really fun. Like the technology things, I try not to give them too many iPads or anything, but it, it's really fun like that. But kids are challenging as well. And when you're working 14, 16 hour days and getting woken up twice a night, that's hard. That's very hard. It definitely puts a perspective on life and it changes you as to what your, uh, what your priorities are going forward. I think that's a definite one. The very, very strong need to think about your family and their importance and future first via anything more selfish. But yeah, it's it's different than what I thought it would be. I don't know what I thought it would be, but it's certainly a very interesting experience. You mentioned earlier that you had a close relationship with your own father. I know he passed a few years ago and I had the pleasure of meeting him once actually. He was, was a gent. He did, yeah. <laughs> How has, how was his relationship with yours, with you, affected 
how you are as a father? Good question. My dad was wonderful with me, I suppose, in like I talked about my son and teaching him things. My dad was, he always said he wanted to write a book and it was going to be called Letters to My Son because he would write emails to me with something that just popped into his head. And whether it's how to conduct yourself in a business situation or something completely random interpersonal, he was very good at doing that. And a lot of that is, I think, very much stood to me. I don't think everyone in this world is lucky enough to get that sort of guidance and stuff like that. I always were, I think one of my, one of my proudest moments was my speech at his funeral. And I put that together and it went down extremely well. And I got a, a massive Ooh. round of applause because I painted the picture about him and there's my son screaming now. I'm sorry. I hope you can't help hear that. But yeah, I mean, a lot of people said, look, we saw every bit of you in him and he gave me the entrepreneurial spirit of which, well, for the first 20 years of my career, I didn't do anything because I was a corporate slot. But now I am out on my own in this big bad world of startups and stuff like that. So he definitely gave me that. But the trials and tribulations and challenges that go ahead with that, you need to be very cognizant of what you're doing as well. I heard Kevin O'Leary once said that a corporate job is the price you pay for giving up on your dreams. Yeah. I'm not quite sure. you you, Because I, I had a corporate job for quite a while as well. I think it's an important part of your preparation. So I'm curious mm. to know how your 20-odd years or whatever it was in the corporate world has prepared you for what you're doing now. Mm. Things that you're doing now that you could not imagine doing had you not got that experience. So the world of crypto is a funny old place. It's wild and it's crazy, but I don't think I'd ever want to go back. And mm. I suppose me as in the early days of doing this, when I was pitching to investors or to partners or anything like that, being able to do in my two minute introduction pitch and tell people that I come from Oracle, Dell, Salesforce and HubSpot, that gives a certain level of credibility. If you've been 20 mm. years in four of the biggest and most successful companies in their field, there is an assumption mm. that you know what you're doing and that you come across people all the time and they have in the same 20 years, they've got a dozen or two dozen companies you've never heard of. And it's hard to make any assumptions as to what they've done and what they've learned. Now, what I would say is that mm. when you get thrown into the deep end of a startup, and the tasks you you have to go through, the things you have to learn, the things you need to do are unfathomable compared to just being one tiny wheel in a very large cog engine in a in a big environment. Because there is, and I'm sure we've talked about this in the past, I always felt constrained in a corporate environment because I had ideas and I had creativity and I had things I want to do, but they're all like, stop doing that, do this. And I didn't like that. Mm. Now that I'm in this world, it's, you can have 500 ideas and you can try to do them all, but it's about prioritization. And it's about like in, in my, and in crypto, one of the wonderful things about crypto is I could very easily Forget the titles and all that system. No matter who you are, you can knock on the door of some very senior people in crypto and get a meeting, no problem. I'm, no one's going to be able to do that with the head of HSBC or, or Nestle or anything yeah. like that. It, it's very flat. It's very accessible. And because of that, there's a huge amount of meetings and, and things like that. So my average day is 
twice as busy as my busiest day ever in the corporate world. It's, it, uh, the, the amount of physical relationships you have to manage on a consistent basis because you're constantly meeting people. You're constantly on new calls. You're constantly deriving new ways in which you could get a partnership going. And just trying to juggle the sheer amount of these relationships that you got is one of the most challenging aspects of yeah. it. Okay, you mentioned crypto, but we need to set some context for people because we jumped from corporate to crypto. And mm. I don't think that tells people what it is you're doing currently. Mm. So maybe you could tell me a little bit about Animal Concerts first, and then we'll go back and talk about the journey over the past two years, how you ended up doing mm. that. But to help people understand where the business value is mm. from your company, and then we'll work backwards. So essentially what Animal Concerts do is we create unique and immersive concert experiences online and in the metaverse. And we partner with A-list artists and celebrities, and we help them navigate mm -hmm. this incredible journey into the world of Web3 and NFTs and metaverse. Because I've been at this for nearly two years now, and I've had an awful lot of conversations with A-list artists, with record companies, with people who own catalogs. They're all bombarded with it, and they have been for quite a while. Not just, it all came to a head when Mark Zuckerberg renamed as Meta and went, the metaverse is the future of the internet, and everyone went, okay, I've been talking about that for about a year beforehand, and people looked at me like I had three heads. So it got an awful lot easier mm. then. These people yeah. want a piece of this. They see this as the future. Let's face it, the music industry has got hammered a number of times in the past with Napster, with streaming, with YouTube, with Spotify taking all the revenues and things like that. They're not going to stand by and let it happen again. They want to be there and they want to be at the forefront. They want to exposure to this, but they do not know how to do it themselves and it, because it's very complicated. And at the end of the day, a lot of tech people have absolutely no idea about it themselves. So when you come to music people who are generally not tech people, they don't have to do it. Mm. We solve the problems so, so for tell them. Me... Sorry, go ahead, so please. We solve the problems for oh, well, them I was gonna... by, by sort of bringing them into this world of metaverse, into NFTs, exposing them and their brand and their music to a whole host of new people and to potentially millions of people worldwide. So let me see if I've understood this in terms of what the end product would look like or how people might experience. It's different to what people might have done over the pandemic in terms of online concerts. This is in the metaverse. This is virtual reality that people are experiencing these concerts. Is that, do I have that right, first of all? It's both. So we do both. We do okay. normal online concerts that you may want to watch Def Leppard, and you've never seen them before, and these guys, we're going to do a concert, and we put it on, and you can tune in on your phone, on your laptop, on your TV, or mm. with one of these 3D headsets like an Oculus Rift, and you can have a completely immersive 3D experience. But the second thing we do is we do concerts in the metaverse. And if you don't know what the metaverse mm. is, it's quite simply the next generation of the internet, and it's in 3D, because... I believe that my son is going to look back at me in 10 years time and go, dad, do you mean to tell me that you experience the internet by holding this piece of glass in your phone and stroking it with your finger? It's going to sound utterly preposterous in 10 to 15 years that the metaverse will just become part of us. It's extremely early right now. Realistically, what the metaverse is today is it's gaming. 
You've got the big mm. ones, you've got Decentraland and Sandbox, but they don't have very many users. And if you've used them, it looks like some sort of game a six-year-old plays, like Roblox or something like that. But for any people out there whose kids do play Roblox, you'll know that it's not just a game, it's a social platform. And this is the evolution of what's happening. But you've also got Fortnite, and Fortnite is this massive multiplayer game, and we've had some massive concerts already with Lil Nas, and we've also had Travis Scott, and then we've had Ariana mm. Grande. This is amazing. Ariana Grande did a concert in Fortnite. 78 million people around the world watched that concert, and she made what? $50 million selling the digital assets within that concert. And that is making a lot of people around the world go. Now, here's what I want to understand. That, that's amazing. Because nobody told me about this concert. That's the first thing. I'm upset, right? Very few people know um, about this. Yeah, Unless this you're weird. 14 but, or 8 or something like that. And then they all. Because move. just before you said that, I was thinking the artists who are working with you are coming to you because. It's not so much that they're making a ton of money out of this right now like they would in a stadium, but they want to own that, that space and not be disintermediated by the Spotify. But then you just said that, and I thought, okay, well, maybe there is money in it right here and now. Well, yeah, is, okay. is that, is it? There's a couple mm. of things here, and I need to go back a little bit, okay? And I'll try to, try to remember where I need to get to. When I tell you that, there was a concert with 78 million people attended. It's because so many kids play Fortnite and we may not realize this, but they spend more time hanging out with their friends in the game than they do in real life because they got a headset on like this, they're playing a game and they're talking to all their friends. Okay, I'm not a gamer, so I don't do it. I don't have time, but it's massive. And the other thing is that the other, I say to people, she made $50 million and they're like, on what, how? Number one, it was a free concert, but Games these days make more money. It's not just me and you going in and buying Super Mario off the shelf and Nintendo making 50 quid. Nowadays, the purchase of the game is one thing and it's small, but now it's all the in-game purchasing and downloadable content where all of the money is made. And mm. you can buy skins, which means you can you have a digital avatar and you can put a shirt and glasses and buy guns and level up and all those sort of things, okay? It's massive. What's happening now is that kids today are more excited to buy a pair of sneakers on their avatar in the game than they are to get a pair of Nikes from their dad. That's where it is now. And I mean, I realized this about two years ago when one of my friends said to me exactly that. He said to his son, do you want a hundred bucks to buy a new pair of shoes or do you want it in the game? He said, in the game. No, straight away. And what's important to note here is that kids today have a very acute value for digital assets that people of our generation do not. Because you and I, we valued this set of headphones for $150 and we valued this phone for nearly a thousand. And I'm trying to see if anything else around me, it might be shoes down there for a hundred. Kids are purchasing things in game and online and they're not they're, it's not physical but that doesn't mean it doesn't have significant value to them and we can come back to this but that's where nfts come in because it, it brings value to something that's digital that could be easily replicable okay mm. so 
going back, you've now got this wonderful opportunity to take a concert and bring it online to an almost unlimited amount of people. The last concert I went to before I left Ireland was Coldplay. And I'm not a huge fan, but my wife is. So we went along. And actually, it was an amazing concert with a wonderful spectacle. They give you this, like, wristband, and it lights up, and the whole... It was fantastic. And I thought to myself, if I took Coldplay, and I got them to do one of their amazing concerts, but digitally, and anyone around the world could tune in, and instead of me paying 100, 150 euros, or whatever it was, for this ticket, of which... They sold at Lansdowne Road three nights in a row. So I don't know, 200 plus thousand people. If I did this online and I sold the ticket for 10 or $20, how many tickets do you think I'm going to be able to sell? Millions. I, yeah, <laughs> calculate, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And there, there are some calculations yeah. you can do to go how many albums or tickets can someone sell and you can put a multiple on that and stuff like that. And that's essentially where it is. But when, you know, you've got a lot of concert promoters, like Live Nation is the really big one in the US. They pretty much own the mm. concert thing. They did it by offering these guys more money because the way it generally works, and I tell you this concrete, so many artists I've spoken to, it's been drilled into them from the very, very beginning of their careers. Get the money up front because there's so many shysters in the industry who'll promise you this, promise you that. Just get paid up front and whatever else happens afterwards, who cares? You get your half a million or whatever it is for your concert and you know, you're know you on to the next one. But the days are changing of that because they're getting completely robbed by Spotify. They're getting pennies on the dollar for millions of plays. Games are changing. They used to make all their money in two things, touring and t-shirts. And then in come COVID mm. and that absolutely murdered that. Now, a lot of these guys, they have money. It's not really so much about the money. It's about staying relevant. And when they didn't mm. tour for two plus years and it's only getting back to it now, there's only so many Instagram posts, et cetera, they can do. They need to interact with their mm. uh, world, uh, with, with, with their fans uh, and their ecosystem. And we can provide an interesting way for them to do that, but we can do it in the metaverse. We can gamify it. We can monetize it. And we can also, our deal is 50-50 after cost. We're partners. And they look at that now. Sometimes we do have to give something up front. But at the end of the day, they're going, hey, if I do a tour or I do a concert or I do some sort of other activity, I'll get paid a set fee for that. But all of the massive upside is there for the promoter, whoever it is. When we're doing a concert and then we're partners in it and they're going to be promoting on their social media channels and everything like that, and they get 50% of anything, that's a pretty damn good deal. Because generally, if they get any upside, it's sort of 12, 14, maybe 18%. Yeah. Yes, no, I can see the attraction for them in it. I just, I, I know this is a, a, probably a silly question. When you have this concert in the metaverse, are the artists represented as avatars or are you looking at the artists real images of them in a virtual surrounding it could be both and it depends okay. on the concert and it depends on the artist so mm. we can take in we've got some deals right now that we'll be soon be announcing with let's say for example some very large festivals and that will be mm. a 2d thing you'd love to attend coachella or some massive festival you've never been to but you know you can watch it on your tv okay and that will just be like that but the second thing mm. is, let's take a performance and put it in the metaverse. Now, when you look at Ariana Grande and Travis Scott and Lil Nas X and stuff like that, 
Well, generally what those are is they're pre-recorded. You put them in a green screen room and you dance around and you match it up to the lyrics and you create this avatar-y kind of thing, which looks, it's almost like being in a music video. Imagine it's- Is it like the ABBA experience? Yes and no, it depends. I've only heard of it. I haven't actually seen it, but it is very interesting. And, I, and that's one of the things I used to talk about for a long time. That's not just the kids here. ABBA launched a new album and they're doing it with a virtual concert and they've been selling tickets for like mm. six months at this stage. Okay, mm. so that's one. But we can do it a number of ways. We've also got technology that can take a, a live performance on stage. The person wears a bodysuit and we have cameras and it can in real time convert them into a metaverse avatar and have the concert that way. So it can be done both. Yeah. Now, the NFT side of things, I, I assume that's for all of the merchandising and in-app in purchases. Mm. Is that, do I have yeah. that right? Exactly. I mean, when you go to a concert, you buy a t-shirt, you buy a wristband, you buy an album. There's loads of different things you can buy. This is just buying the same stuff, but it's virtual. And mm. people have collected things since the dawn of time. Coins, mm. stamps, sports memorabilia. Now people are collecting digital assets and Mm. NFTs have done 40, nearly 50 billion this year already. So it is a very significant market and it's still quite young. Now there is a bit of craziness going on and it's down obviously an awful lot from its peaks last year and things like that. But I very, and that's how we came up with this entire idea was artists are going to be doing more concerts online. NFTs are taking off. Let's marry the two. Let's do virtual concerts. Let's do NFTs on behalf of these artists and let's see where it goes. And that's how it all started. So how did you come up with the idea? It wasn't me, myself. It was one of the guys on my team. Uh, I have a bit of a music background. I used to DJ for many years. If I was back in Dubai, there'd be decks behind me, but they're in storage now. One of my other colleagues used to manage bands in, in college and he used to sort of sign big bands to bring in for the college's big parties and stuff like that. And he thought, you know what, any band, you pay him money, they'll play for you. You can get Bruno Mars to play your birthday if you pay him enough money. And if we could do that and somehow bring these uh, concerts online and send, uh, sell an awful lot of tickets, but marry that with doing NFTs, maybe there's potential there. And that's basically where it grew. Mm. Uh, almost two years ago was where the idea was founded on a call with me and one of my teammates. And uh, yeah, and then fast forward and here we are. So it's been a pretty wild journey. What's been the toughest part of that journey? Oh, there's a lot of tough parts of this journey. You got internal and external forces, I think, on this. Managing virtual teams all over the world is really hard. There are people on my team I've never met. I was just over in LA the other day meeting some of them who I hadn't met for ages. And then there's others that I've literally never met because they're in Australia or mm. UK or something like that. As I mentioned to you earlier, definitely one of the hardest things is juggling the sheer quantity of different stakeholders like when you when in, in jobs that we used to do you have an account base and you're working that but i mean my whatsapp and telegram has dozens and dozens and dozens of conversations going every single day and dozens a week of new people and i do a lot of work on the partnership side so just managing that and doing what we do everyone wants to work with us it's ruthless prioritization to go who who's actually going to be able to do something who's going to be able to deliver value who are we going to mm. work with and it's yeah that that can be very hard the process i mean we launched our own cryptocurrency that was a wild journey and a, one of the 
definitely one of the hardest, but without a doubt, most rewarding things I've ever done in my career was fascinating. Uh, prof- I can see you're about to ask a question. Gonna, yeah, I was sorry, I was. Okay, I, I understand the link between crypto and NFTs. Why would you launch your own currency when there's so many other cryptocurrencies out there? Well, there's a couple of reasons for it. We wanted our own cryptocurrency because we want the currency. The token is the currency of the animal ecosystem. So you will mm. use or you can use the animal token to purchase the tickets and purchase the NFTs. But it's also used as a methodology for allowing interaction between fans and artists and allowing fans have a voting privilege over, right, who do we book? Where do they play? What songs do they play? What do they wear? Anything like that, okay? A lot of that crypto stuff is really just about flattening everything and taking out layers and allowing people to have part of it. But it's also about rewards. So there's something called staking, which is quite simply like getting interest and your money in a bank. You can stake the token and get rewards. But also if you want access to these top level first drop NFTs, you have to hold our token to be able to get access to that and things like that. The other reason, and I could talk for hours on this, but I won't, is that the model of launching a business on the blockchain and launching your own cryptocurrency is a phenomenal, incredible opportunity. Because the typical model is you come up with a business plan and you get some seed funding or you scrape together from friends and family and you raise a hundred grand or whatever and you build your product or you do something and then you go and you try and raise money and you give away massive chunks of your business at a terribly low valuation Mm. and you end up, if it takes off, you end up owning very little of it at the end. In cryptocurrency, it turns everything on its head and it's... I don't want to say crowdsourcing, but it's a little bit different because you go out there and you pitch your idea to a whole load of crypto VCs. And these are people who've made a ton of money in crypto from the very beginning. And now they invest in in seed projects that you give discount rates. And yeah, I mean, we raised eight figures in about six months. I did it literally myself with a little bit of help, but you can raise millions and millions of dollars and you're selling your token and your coin based on the fact that will have utility and future significant value, which means the price will go up. And I mean, I've, the wild thing about crypto is how many incredibly wealthy people you meet, but Mm. I've never met nicer and more genuinely not cool and down to earth people in my life. And you meet people who are worth 50 and a hundred million and they're no different to anyone else, but they've done that via a very strategic strategy of finding good projects very early and seeing those monstrous returns and, uh, and that's happened. And we're in, a, we're in a place right now where some incredible projects that are at a 90, 95% discount and in the next couple of years when the market recovers and takes off, those people will make a ton of money again. So the opportunity to launch a business, I would definitely advise everyone if you're thinking about launching a business and there is a solid opportunity to use the blockchain and make it Web3, do it. It, You're dealing with a different set of VCs, if I've understood that correctly as well. These are not the traditional hard-nosed... They're not, but what I would say is all, not all, but a lot of the traditional hard-nosed VCs are now going, let's look at Web3 because they would bust their ass for 6 or 8% for every year. And then you see some guys, I mean, I literally know a VC who started two years ago and they are 53x on their initial investment. Mm. And those sort of 
ridiculous numbers are hard to ignore. So that's why the market is really changing there. You're also seeing a brain drain from traditional finance into crypto projects because it's the cool stuff. It is changing the game. There is a lot of money to be made and some Wall Street executive is bored of what he's doing and they're flipping over to this now. It's only the beginning. It's going to continue and it's going to accelerate for sure. Mm -hmm. What are the hot areas? You're obviously in one, which are the concerts and all that comes with that. What are some of the other areas that you see that are getting people excited? Gaming is what leads most of this sort of stuff. And it really does. And you're mm. seeing gaming and you're seeing this play to earn now, which has been around for a while. And it literally means that you can earn money or tokens playing games. Axie Infinity was the big one. And I've met people who employ dozens of guys out in the Philippines and they play games and they make money. It's wild. We do something called Watch to Earn, which just gives an ability for users who interact with our platform the most to actually earn credits back and be able to spend them and things like that, which is really cool. Obviously, NFTs, Metaverse is big. It's making their own Metaverse these days. It's every, like I've literally had a, another call this morning with another Metaverse. They're all doing it. 98% of them are going to fail. There will be a lot of consolidation. Maybe not 98%, but a lot. it's going to be very difficult for most of these guys to actually get an audience in their Metaverse. Because the way I look at this is that the metaverse is just going to be a future web page. Some web, some brands are going to have their own metaverse because it makes sense. Not all, not even most, but some of them are. But the metaverse is it's going to play out over the next number of years. It's quite far away from being ubiquitous, but it'll come in, I think, when the mm. technology gets there. So remember Google Glass? People are working on these Google mm. Glass things now. It's going to beam it into your eyeball because no one really wants to walk around with a big brick on their face. It's a bit ridiculous. Mm. I personally know I'm as what? a friend... Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, well, it's okay. I have another... Okay, well, I'll tell but... you because this is interesting and I yeah. think I did tell you this yeah, before. Yeah, please. I have a friend of mine, one of the smartest guys I've ever met, smartest guy I've ever met, he is developing a contact lens that gets inserted into your eye in the same operation as a cataract, which is the most common operation in the world. And that contact lens has an 8K TV on it, and you will have the metaverse in your own eyes. I am not joking. This is going to happen. He is 18 months away from clinical trials. I told him I will be right at the front of that queue. Give it to me. But... Imagine how the world will change when you no longer need to look at a phone and you can see everything. And couple that with Elon Musk's brain interface device and we've got a very different place. But that's a long way out. And just to follow and answer your question, DeFi is decentralized finance is huge and it's getting bigger and it's getting, the banks should be really scared right now. They really should. There's going to be monstrous changes over the next number of years. And I'm a bit, yeah. big Bitcoin proponent and how it's going to change. Only the little mm -hmm. governments are coming into it now, but it, just wait. I just wonder, is there a danger that central government, central banks will try to grab regulation? Oh, they will. No, no, regulation yeah. is a certainty. And I think in certain ways, regulation yeah. will be extremely good for the market. Kevin O'Leary, who you mentioned earlier, has this great... Thing about mm. how he thinks it will become the 12th element of the, the S&P. No, I can't remember, but it will essentially become, crypto will become one of the other major assets. And when regulation mm. says that you can hold it on your balance sheet because accountants mm. don't know what the hell to do with it right now, you've only really got Michael Saylor from MicroStrategy and you've got Elon Musk and stuff, although he think he sold all his. Mm. 
once that comes in, it'll change. But what's going to happen is the central banks are already, most of them, working on central bank digital currencies. It's a topic for a whole other thing. There's a lot of conspiracies around what that will bring because universal basic income will come one day mm. and it'll all be via CBDCs. Everything's completely tracked, everything's controlled, and it'll be a spend it or lose it type of thing. It will be very interesting to see. But at the end of the day, with Bitcoin, a lot of people really don't understand. If you don't agree or you don't get Bitcoin, it's because you don't understand it. I've never met anyone who went down the journey of understanding it and then not coming on side. Never. And I would highly advise anyone to sort of go through that journey and truly understand. Watch Michael Saylor videos. He's the best guy to understand why it is a game changer. And it will change things massively over the next number of years. Yeah. I think the fear obviously people have when they look at Bitcoin is because it's so volatile, is there's a risk, of, there's a loss aversion there, as in I buy today, am I at the edge of the cliff? But People uh, are more afraid mm. of what they can lose than yeah. the fear and greed about what they can potentially gain. Okay, sure. but you know, only invest what you can afford to lose. But if you yeah. understand where where it's going and why, then you will have a, a certain certainty. No one's ever held Bitcoin for five years or more and lost money. But the other thing is these wild ups and downs will narrow. Yeah, and it, so it's not a short-term thing. Help me, I want to make this more practical. For example, where I am right now, and this was inspired by the pandemic where the, the, I, I, my business could not go on site anywhere. Mm. And now it's with remote working. Companies don't want to bring their people together that often. That said, I'm in London next week for the first two-day session I've had mm. in over two years. But, so this is a 2D, people call it virtual training. It's not virtual, it's remote, it's different. Mm. Mm. It's like a small studio. And I'm wondering what that would look like in five years' time. But so this is a much more, this, this is not gaming, this is, it's mm. educational, right? I don't mean the podcast, but the training business, if you like. What, in your opinion, will that look like? Well, in five years' time, the technology will have advanced a lot, okay? And number one, everyone will have a near photorealistic avatar because that can be done almost already, okay? There's several of them right now where you can scan yourself and get a digital avatar, and it's really cool. That will become more and more prevalent. You will then, instead of wearing this giant stupid thing on your face, you'll have a simple pair of glasses, and you'll be able to see... And it will then be virtual because it'll be like the, you know, what we used to talk about, the Jetsons and stuff like that. You'll be able to have a meeting with people around the world. Yeah, we already do that with Zoom. We're doing it right now. But it will be much more immersive because you can look left and you can see Steve over there and you can right, look right and you can see Jane over there. Okay. And then you will be able to have a virtual meeting. If you saw... And there was a very large embarrassment about it because it was rubbish. Mark Zuckerberg's, I spent $10 billion and here's what I came out with my metaverse and it looks like some sort of kid game. He still has his vision as to where it's going to go. And it is going to go there. Mm. It just needs a bit of time for the technology to catch up. It, it, it's, it's what's realistic. So I do think in five years time is a safe amount of time to go. You will be able to do virtual training. And you will be able to put on your glasses and watch you walk up and down a stage. Everyone's at the front row and then you can break out to tables and you can have this mm. engagement thing. So, you know, it, it will do it already. I mean, one of one of our partners, you can go into the metaverse, obviously, with you know, one of these Oculus things in your head. But as this guy moves his hands, the character's hands are moving. The, the facial 
AI changes his face based on whether he's laughing or crying or whatever it is. And all of that sort of stuff will get more and more advanced up until the point where it's like ready to use. I'm wondering what's the what's holding it back from that. I'm imagining, but tell me if I'm wrong. It's the goggles thing that, for example, if I had the platform right now to do something like that, there's no real market for me because I'd have to. People would have to have the goggles in order to mm. to immerse themselves well, in it. It's a little bit like us. With I, ha we we did a concert with a rapper called Future. Who anyone who's mm. half my age will know who he is. Okay. It was in the Fontainebleau Hotel in Miami, and it was a really amazing party. And I have it here uh, where you can watch it on your phone. And as you move your phone around, you can like look into the crowd. And there's like six cameras and one of them's on a drone. And there's girls dancing on the stage there. And there's the crowd here and there's the DJ behind. It's really cool. You could do it on okay. your phone. But when you put these goggles on, you're there. I mean, you, mm. you feel like you are there. It is a really immersive experience. And if you're ever back in Dubai, Paul, there's an amazing thing where you can go in the mall and it's an even more immersive. It's like being in an Indiana Jones experience and it's really amazing. But again, the problem for us about doing these 3D VR concerts is that there are only about 10 million VR headsets in existence. That's a very small number in comparison to how many mobile phones there are, which is a couple of billion. Mm. But that is going to change really fast because Apple and all of the big companies are working on them. And when Apple comes out with one, which I think they are soon, but it's going to be really expensive, but yeah. they always are at the beginning and blah, blah, blah. And when they become more ubiquitous and when they get smaller and lighter and then they go into glasses. And I, I met someone in L.A. just a couple of weeks ago and he showed me them and they just look like a pair. And it's amazing. Yeah. And even his ones, they literally, they even though people hate this, they record everything 24-7, upload to the cloud. So if you go, oh, who is that guy? You can just go and reverse and watch it again. It's like a Black Mirror episode. It's coming. Mm. I know people don't like yeah, this stuff. No, I'm watching DJI, the drone company. And they came out with an FPV drone recently, a really cool little built-in guard, the whole thing. But they're selling, they had their version, one of the goggles, which were the big Oculus, ugly looking things. Mm. But they've reduced them and now they're still covering your face and mm. there's a little wire hanging out to a battery. So they're still not, they're not wearable like a set of glasses would be, but you can see it, you can see the progression. And it's like a lot of technologies, there's a tipping point where people go, you know what, it's a, it's 99 quid for a pair of those. Correct. I can access all the concerts all year long. So it's just, it's interesting to watch it. All of these various things coalesce, the different technologies evolve and then connect together at one point where the whole thing then explodes. And that's how things are done. Yeah, I, are I share your excitement. Well, <laughs> we're currently at the briefcase mobile phone stage. You, you remember back in the, what, 80s I do. or whatever, where it was like a literal briefcase and you held it up like that and you walked around. And I remember yeah. my dad going, or, or then it, it, the big chunky ones the, that you yeah. saw in the 70s. And I remember my dad going, I will never have one of those. Look at these morons. Whatever. And fast forward 10 years and he couldn't leave the house without it. We, we yeah. need the Nokia 5110 of headsets where it yeah. becomes reasonable and cheap and usable and things like that. And after that, it will accelerate. It's absolutely fascinating. And I wish you huge success with this. Not that I, you need it, you're, you're there already, but it's going to be an incredible journey, I would imagine, because I would imagine that the ground is changing underneath you as you walk, as you run. 
that every time yeah. you look down, there's a, the landscape is evolving the whole time. That's what must be, I'm guessing, most exciting about it. Oh, I just got off a call with one of my founders this morning and I, maybe in three or six months, I will tell you what it is that we will be doing that I'm so excited about. But some of the things that we've got on the pipeline are wildly crazy and you'd think I'm lying if I told you right now, but it is amazing. But these things take time. Mm. The one that is exciting that I can tell you about is that we're doing an NFT drop with Snoop Dogg in a couple of months. And we're really excited about that. We sort of, again, we haven't really got into this, but we're changing the game and how we're doing it because we're getting into the, we're in the IP ownership game whereby we have purchased the rights to a song with Snoop Dogg and Billy Ray Cyrus called Hardworking Man. It's going to be launched very soon alongside this NFT drop and then a metaverse concert later on. And we're going to be doing a NFT drop with Crypto.com and Snoop and Billy Ray. And yeah, it's going to be a pretty big deal. So very excited about that. And then after that, there'll hopefully be just a, a waterfall of really cool stuff happening. So Snoop Dogg is working with Achy Breaky Heart Man. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, put it this way. The last Achy Breaky Heart Man song was Old Town Road. And that was one of the biggest successes ever. Two billion streaming views. You remember, it was like this wow. country rap type thing. And the song yeah, I'd forgotten sort of about that. Exactly. Yeah, forgotten and people about don't that. realize because it's Little Nas. Yeah. Little Nas was no one. And he got he got Billy Ray to sing on his album. And we have this song called Old Town, sorry, called uh, Hardworking Man, which is the Avila Brothers yeah. written by them. And it's got uh, Snoop and then Billy Ray on it. And it's a great song. And it's about the hardworking man of America, keeping the country going. Um, mm. uh, it's I can't tell you who, but it's going to be on some major uh, events pretty soon. Hopefully I can announce that pretty soon. I'm very excited about that. Good for you. And then when we do this NFT drop, and it'll be great. And then we've got Alicia Keys. We're going to be doing some NFT drops with her. We've got mm. Robin Thicke and, and a bunch more soon to release. Fantastic. Two quick questions before I let you go. Mm. Desert Island. You're going to be marooned on a desert island. You don't know whether you're ever going to be rescued. What? And I can't be a person. What one thing would you take with you? Oh, I'm going to be nerdy and say my computer. <laughs> Can I say that? My phone. There's no internet know. connection I, there. So I, I'm a, I, oh, that is a very good question. So I'm not allowed any technology? No, you are. It's just there's no base station there. So I don't know what you're going to do with it. You could play games with it. You could write your memoirs with it, I guess. But Maybe it does music. limit you. You're not. I'd, I'd, music. I'd bring okay. my music with me because I love that. Yeah, okay. for sure. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Or actually, uh, maybe I take my camera, Paul, like, okay. like myself, and I take some pictures. <laughs> yeah. And the motorbike. Oh, yeah, maybe the yeah. motorbike. That'd be fun. Yeah. Yeah. Well, depends on how big it is. Again, it's, okay. Interesting. <laughs> last question. Um, last question is, when your time on this planet is done and there's a book written about your life, what would you like the title of it to be? Oh, dear Lord. That's a very hard question to ask. I can't think what does everyone else say for this i really don't know I'm turning this back on you and my sandler <laughs> techniques paul <laughs> well it's everyone it's, it depends most people have, i'm gonna have to give that some thought i don't know <laughs> yeah most people answer it along he cares something like that it's mine wouldn't be ma like he made that. a difference give, give, give it your best uh, do it all here's what something i here like can i suggest something for you along the lines yeah, of you can yeah. The, uh, have you seen the, the uh, Steve Jobs movie? Yes, I have, yes. 
There's a line in there when he's trying to recruit the guy from Dell or Compact, one of those big companies, HP, sorry, as his market, he was the head of marketing in HP. And he said, do you want to sell computers or do you want to create the future? Mm. And I thought it was a fantastic line. And mm. I think that's your, your, well, your, your I, part I, I of that, creating the future. Maybe I can rob from, do you remember Tony O'Reilly, the Irish multimillionaire yes. slash billionaire? Yes. Okay. He yes. came to my school when I was about 16, and I remember his final words were the Nike stay of just do it. And I do think that's really mm. important because I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. I always wanted to have my own business. I always wanted to more recently work in crypto, but I never actually thought it would happen. I genuinely never thought I would do mm. it because I did, it, it takes a lot of risk and balls and it's extremely fearful like the day i quit my job to go at this full time and i you know, i plowed all my money into it and i didn't know if i was going to be homeless in three or six months or whatever that was horrible but it was mm. done by my, my co-founder who thinks much bigger and more crazy than me when he thinks about well let's do it let's mm. do nfts and metaverse and for concerts and i was like what he was like yeah let's do it so so let's do it would probably be the uh, the name of my book love it yeah. <laughs> I think your father would be incredibly proud of what you've done. I hope so. Yeah, I just wish he was still mm. here because he wouldn't understand mm. it, but he would He would Doesn't matter. like to watch. He'd understand what you were doing, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Colin, thanks so much for being the guest on the podcast today. It's really been a appreciate pleasure. It. It's been yeah, a wonderful uh, hour. And just fascinating. You know, as, as for, from what people don't know is that we've been friends for many, very many years in 2006 when you gave me my first level of training and you were doing magic tricks and I still to this day use so many tactics and sales uh, aspects that you told yeah. me from somewhere yeah. and I'm uh, I, I wish I had that. I wish I had some NFT IP in that <laughs> that I could realize <laughs> today I think you could do uh, it yeah Sandler yeah. universe it's gonna happen what I have been thinking about but that's another conversation I need to let you go but we, maybe we can come back to this in six months nine months down the line because things Absolutely. are going so fast that story mm. will be so much more evolved. I'd love to hear more about it uh, then. But for now, I would love to. enjoy Brazil uh, and you. enjoy your family.